0: Hello and welcome to The Adventures of Paul Temple from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Guests like the look of the Shepley Hotel in High Moorford. It was one of the more dignified type, a medium between a high-class commercial and a semi-luxurious residential. It would be difficult to imagine anything untoward happening behind those discreet portals. "'He had left the Morris in a lane two miles back "'and walked the rest of the journey carrying only a small suitcase "'which he had transferred to the police car after the accident. "'An elderly reception clerk welcomed him "'with just the right touch of deference. "'Good afternoon, sir,' guest put down his case. "'Good afternoon. Uh, "'Could I have a room, please? "'A single room, if you have one. "'I may be staying for a day or two. The clerk consulted a book. Very good, sir. Room 14. Thank you, said Guest. And could you let me have a large double scotch up there right away? Oh, and I shall want dinner in my room, about 7.30. The clerk took a note of this, then touched a bell. If you wouldn't mind signing the register, sir, he murmured politely, pushing the book towards Guest. Guest took the pen and wrote, Major Guest, London. Thank you very much, Major, said the clerk. The room is on the first floor. Guest followed the young porter, who had picked up his case. When they had reached the room, he turned and said, I ordered a large double whisky. On second thoughts, make it a bottle, and bring a siphon too, will you? Yes, sir. Guest sank onto a chair and idly unlocked the suitcase he was looking forward to the drink he had ordered it had been warm rowing and his nerves could certainly do with steadying after what seemed an age the porter reappeared with a tray on which were a bottle a siphon and three glasses guest gave him a shilling and proceeded to pour out the whisky he was just lifting the glass to his lips When there was the sound of a key in the lock, the door opened, and to his astonishment, Iris came into the room. Without a word, she closed the door noiselessly behind her. The actress showed no outward sign of injury. At the hospital they had found that there were no broken bones, but her shoulder had been badly sprained. A young doctor had persuaded Iris to try a new electrical treatment for which apparatus had just been installed, and the result had been quite remarkable. "'Apart from a certain stiffness, she felt no pain in her shoulder, "'though the doctor had warned her that she would probably do so the next day "'if she did not return for further treatment. Guest set down his glass on the pewter tray. "'What the devil are you doing here?' he gasped. "'Surprised, Major,' demanded Iris with her insolent stare. "'She leaned against the door and eyed him deliberately. "'What?' "'What happened?' stammered Guest. "'Don't worry,' she replied sarcastically. "'Your little trick with the steering worked all right. "'There was a most spectacular accident that would have cheered you immensely. "'Drop that gun!' "'Her right arm was whipped from behind her back, "'and Guest let fall the revolver he was drawing from his coat pocket. "'Iris came forward and picked it up. "'Following instructions to the last,' she said. "'Iris, things are serious. "'Damn serious,' said Guest hoarsely. "'Well?' "'After you left us at the station, "'Van and I went to Mrs. Moffat's place. "'Then, about two hours ago, we went on to the chalet. "'I don't see that this interests me particularly. "'We were followed, Iris. "'They've had a man watching the shop for the past week. "'Go on.' "'she told him, carelessly fingering the revolver. "'Guest was obviously apprehensive. "'The man caught up with us about a mile from Aberford, "'and the two cars. "'My God, what a crash! "'I thought at first a dose of your own medicine, eh?' "'she murmured grimly. "'Well, go on. "'Van was killed, almost instantaneously, I should imagine.' "'The other fellow was pretty badly cut about, but his car was all right, "'so I continued the journey alone. "'To the chalet?' he nodded. "'When I got to the boat, I noticed some smoke rising round the headland, "'and by the time I got the boat across Scullydown Lock, "'the whole place was practically in ruins. "'How on earth could that happen?' she asked. Guest swallowed hard. "'You see?' "'When Van and I received our instructions about taking you off the train at High Morford, "'we left Hardwick at the chalet alone. "'He couldn't escape. We made certain of that all right. "'But we never dreamt that he'd set fire to the place. "'Then what's happened to the screen and the beam, and Hardwick too, for that matter?' "'Guess shook his head gloomily. "'I don't think there's any doubt about what happened to Hardwick,' he said. "'Standing at the side of the lake,' he continued in almost a whisper, "'staring at what was left of the chalet, "'I suddenly felt desperate and hellishly scared. "'I knew that Z-4 was on the verge of contacting Mrs. Moffat. "'I knew that sooner or later Van Draper would be found "'and the net would begin to tighten. "'I came back over the lake "'and decided to stay here for a while and wait for things to develop.' They'll develop, all right, said Iris softly. In a day or two. I expect I'll go back to town, he concluded. Will you, Major? That's very interesting. There was something in the tone of her voice that made him suspicious. What do you mean? he asked. Simply this, she smiled. If it hadn't been for a miracle, I shouldn't be here. "'You did your damnedest to get rid of me, "'and I always make a point of paying my debts.' "'Her voice was cold, level, and calculating. "'He looked round nervously. "'You needn't try any fancy tricks,' she advised him. "'They looked at each other in silence. "'What are you going to do?' he demanded at last. "'She waited another minute before replying. Strange though it may seem, Major, I'm going to keep you here until a friend of mine arrives. Friend? What friend? cried Guest, in obvious alarm. She pushed one of the revolvers into the pocket of her tailor-made costume. I think you'll find him excellent company, she said, prolonging his agony of apprehension. I'm referring to Temple. She noticed his expression change. "'Paul Temple!' he breathed almost inaudibly. "'Why, you dirty, double-crossing little!' He made a movement towards her, but for the second time she threatened him with the revolver. "'But Iris, you can't!' he began to protest, but she interrupted him in a voice that was quite relentless. "'Whether you like it or not, Major, you're going to wait for Paul Temple!' "'Still pointing the gun at him, "'she picked up his glass of whiskey, drank most of it, "'and pocketed the key to his room, which was lying on the dresser. "'Then she looked at her watch. "'It was five minutes to five. "'Almost carelessly, she left the room, "'closing the self-locking door behind her. "'On the way out, she paused at the reception desk. "'If Mr. Paul Temple calls,' she told the clerk, "'would you please show him up to room 14?' There you are, sir, said the porter, five minutes later, indicating the door of the room. Temple knocked twice, but there was no reply. I say, he called after the retreating porter, have you a key to this door? Isn't the gentleman in? asked the porter, returning and fumbling with a bunch of keys. I'm not sure, replied Temple. Ah, well, we'll soon see, said the other, inserting a key in the lock. Temple entered. At a glance, he took in the inert form on the bed, the whisky and glasses. "'I expect the gentleman's fallen asleep, sir,' suggested the porter, with a knowing wink at the bottle. "'Should I wake him up for you?' Temple picked up the tiny blue file that lay on the tray. "'I think you'd find it rather difficult,' he said. The atmosphere of Mrs. Moffat's kitchen parlour could quite justifiably have been described as tense. It was also more than a trifle stuffy, for Paul Temple, Steve, and Sir Graham had been cooped in the parlour with Mrs. Moffat for over two hours. The two men and Steve had been smoking from time to time, and since the room was lighted by an oil lamp, this hardly improved matters so far as the ventilation was concerned. Up till now there had been few customers and in spite of Mrs. Moffat's assurance that they were all villagers, Sir Graham had insisted upon her repeating the quotation. Mrs. Moffat's growing irritability was therefore understandable. Nor was she the only person who was showing signs of impatience. Sir Graham's nerves were plainly on edge, and he jumped visibly every time the shop bell tinkled. Steve, too, was beginning to show the same symptoms. Only Temple appeared outwardly unruffled, "'in spite of his distressing experience at the Shepley Hotel. "'After ordering the porter to summon the police, "'Temple had rushed downstairs in an attempt to discover some trace of Iris. "'The reception clerk tried to be helpful, "'informing him that he had seen Iris depart in the direction of the station. "'But Temple felt sure that she would be more likely to leave by road. "'So he waited until the local policeman arrived on the scene, "'showed his credentials,' and requested him to telephone Aberdeen to have all trains and road vehicles searched. Sir Graham grunted when Temple told him the story. I thought you were on a bit of a wild goose chase, he said. Nothing of the kind, Temple disagreed. Guest turning up satisfied Iris' lust for revenge. She got even with him. That's all Iris wanted, Sir Graham. The chief commissioner nodded and paced across the room. "'Suddenly he turned. "'What time is it, Temple?' "'Temple looked at his watch. "'I make it about seven-twenty. "'That's right, darling,' Steve corroborated. "'I put my watch right by the radio in the car. "'Heavens, I've been here over two hours,' grumbled Forbes. "'And how much longer do you intend to stay?' asked Mrs. Mufford, "'who'd been maintaining a sullen silence for some minutes.' "'hanging about like a lot of sheep. I'll how you know that the shop closes at eight, "'and I think you know why we are staying, Mrs. Muffet," said Forbes. "'And you might as well make the best of it. "'We are here until Z-4 arrives. "'Then, for God's sake, let's go into the shop,' she snapped. "'We can't all stay in here. "'If you don't get some air into this room, I shall pass out on you.' "'It is pretty stuffy, Sir Graham.' said Steve. Forbes nodded. I know, but we can see the door from here without being noticed. Besides, the shop must appear to be empty, otherwise Z-4 will never come out into the open. We've no guarantee that he will, said Temple. Recent events might have changed his plans. Yes, conceded Sir Graham. There is that possibility, but somehow— "'I've a feeling that he's going to put in an appearance, and pretty soon.' "'Temple lighted another cigarette. "'What happened to Rex, Sir Graham?' asked Steve. "'I sent him back to the inn,' Forbes replied. "'There was no point in Rex staying here. "'Besides, he was rather anxious to make a start on his story. "'Maybe he's gone down to the chalet to see if—' "'He broke off, as the telephone shrilled. "'Hello?' Oh, it's you, Murphy. Yes? That's fine. Good. Well, mind you, keep your eyes skinned, and don't hesitate to challenge anybody. It doesn't matter a damn who they are. He slammed down the receiver. That was one of my men phoning from the box down the road, he explained. This shop's guarded like the Tower of London, he went on excitedly. Once get Z-4 in here, he'll never... Shh hissed Temple. The shop door had opened. It's Dr. Steiner, gasped Steve, peering through a little window-like aperture which looked out into the shop. You know what to do, Mrs. Moffat, said Forbes, in rather a strained voice. And don't forget that quotation. There must be no mistake. He's waiting, Mrs. Moffat, said Temple softly. "'She favoured them with a hostile look, and went into the shop. "'Good evening,' began Steiner pleasantly. "'I should like some postcards, please.' "'Certainly. "'Would you like plain postcards or picture postcards?' said Steiner, "'surveying the contents of the little shop with a smile of amusement. "'You're... you're a stranger round these parts.' The doctor nodded. Very much so, I'm afraid. From Philadelphia, USA. Philadelphia? exclaimed Mrs. Moffat. That must be an awful long way. Well, it rather depends where you start from, said the doctor laughingly. Ah, yes, I was forgetting the postcards. How much? Sixpence. Thank you he murmured, as Mrs. Moffat handed him the cards. Philadelphia, she repeated, apparently rather entranced by the name. It must be a wonderful thing to travel. I often wish I had the time, and the money, of course. What was it that Shakespeare said about travellers? Steiner looked at her for a moment, then gave vent to his deep laugh. I can't recall offhand, madam, he replied, but I think we can take it for granted that it was not very much to the point. He took a handful of small change from his pocket. Sixpence, I think you said, she nodded. Oh, your English coins are so elusive. He sorted out a sixpence and passed it to her. Rather listlessly, she placed it in the drawer. Steiner pushed the postcards in his pocket and turned to go. "'Good night, madame,' he said politely. "'Good night.' The doorbell tinkled once more, and his massive form vanished into the darkness. "'Well, I'm damned,' said Forbes, in such complete dismay that Temple had difficulty in repressing a smile. Mrs. Moffat returned and stood in the doorway, arms akimbo. "'I hope you're satisfied,' she declared in sarcastic tones. She went to her chair and relapsed into a brooding silence once again. A clock outside struck eight. Mrs. Moffat rose. "'I'll be closing the shop now, and maybe the police will find me for breaking the regulations.' "'Just a minute, Mrs. Moffat,' said Temple." "'I think that clock is five minutes fast. "'With an impatient exclamation, she sat down again. "'Even as she did so, the doorbell rang. "'There's someone else,' hissed Forbes. "'Steve peered eagerly through the tiny window. "'Oh, it's only Mrs. Weston,' she announced in disappointed tones. "'Now what the devil does she want?' "'snarled Forbes, who was rather anxious "'that none of the usual customers should complicate matters "'by being present in the shop when Z4 appeared. "'Mrs. Moffat went into the shop and turned up the oil lamp, "'which was not quite equal to lighting the gloomy interior. "'Good evening, Mrs. Moffat.' "'Mrs. Weston was dressed as she had been "'when Steve had spoken to her at the Royal Gate. "'Good evening, Mrs. Weston. "'Shocking weather we're having.' "'I I can't remember a worse winter than this, and that's the truth,' replied Mrs. Weston, unfastening the top button of her coat. "'We seem to have had nothing but rain since August.' She appeared to be slightly out of breath, and leaned on the counter for a minute to recover herself. "'I was sorry to hear about your husband. "'It must have been an awful shock to you,' sympathised Mrs. Moffat. "'Mrs. Weston sighed. "'I don't suppose anyone will ever know just how much I miss him, Mrs. Moffat,' she replied with emotion in her voice. Mrs. Moffat nodded sympathetically. "'Oh, well,' said Mrs. Weston, seeming to pull herself together. "'Now, what was it I came in for? "'Really, my memory's gone from bad to worse. "'Oh, I remember. "'I was wondering if you had some sort of a suitcase I could borrow.' "'I've only got one of those old-fashioned trunks, "'and I'm going down to my married sister's for a few days. "'I thought the change might take my mind off things.' "'Yes, I think I can help you,' said Mrs. Moffat. "'You wouldn't want to be taking the case straight away, I suppose. "'Oh, no, there's no great hurry. "'Then I'll have the boy call round in the morning with it. "'That would do nicely,' Mrs. Weston agreed. "'Is it a long journey you'll be making?' "'Yes, it's a tidy way. "'Rotherham. "'It's near Sheffield, you know. "'Have you ever been to Rotherham?' "'No,' said Mrs. Moffat. "'I'm afraid I haven't. "'There aren't many places I have been to, Mrs. Weston, "'and that's the truth. "'Often thought I'd like to travel, though, "'providing, of course, I had the time and money.' "'Now what was it Shakespeare said about travellers? "'Mrs. Moffat almost smiled as she spoke the familiar words. "'Well, they had insisted on it. "'But to think that a harmless north country body like Mrs. Weston could possibly—' "'Suddenly she realised that Mrs. Weston was speaking. "'A very different Mrs. Weston. "'Her features had tautened, her voice was cold and relentless.' "'Shakespeare said, "'Travelers ne'er did lie, "'though fools at home condemn em "'Deliberately she repeated the words, "'until Mrs. Muffet's eyes were almost starting out of her head. "'She stood transfixed, unable to move or speak. "'Suddenly the door at the back was flung open, "'and Paul Temple stood framed in the doorway. "'He was staring at Mrs. Weston. "'She recoiled a step and hastily fumbled in her bag.' Drop that bag, Mrs. Weston, said Temple sharply. Mrs. Weston did not speak. Her usually ruddy features were blanched, her lips drawn to a thin line. The handbag dropped onto the stone floor. Come on, Forbes. What are you waiting for? called Temple over his shoulder. But, Temple, you can't mean that Mrs. Weston... The chief commissioner was obviously perplexed. Temple nodded. Permit me to introduce you to the leader of the greatest espionage organization in Europe, he said. Z4. Cosgrove, Evening Post, London. Your blue eyed boy has turned up tramps again. Stop. Arrive Euston midnight. Stop. Don't worry about banners, bands, or red carpet. Stop. Clear hole of front page, the greatest espionage story of all time. Stop, am bringing you bottle of your favorite whiskey. Stop, Rex Bryant, Bryant Royal Gate Hotel, Inverdale. You're still sacked, and I don't drink. Cosgrove, Cosgrove Evening Post, London. Wish you wouldn't argue. Stop. "'Lay in stock of seventy-two-point caps and leave rest to me. "'Stop. "'Ignore War Office, Ministry of Information, "'and any interfering politicians. "'Stop. first two thousand words from Glasgow in three hours' time. "'Stop. "'Cut a word and I'll murder you. "'Stop. "'Don't tell Chief or he'll panic and consult Churchill. "'Stop. "'Don't worry. "'It's my favourite whisky, too.' Stop. Rex Bryant. Detective Inspector Wallace Sanford was feeling even more bitter towards the human race than was his usual custom. For well over a week, he had been detailed to conduct a search for Iris Archer, and his reports to Scotland Yard could certainly not have been described as enlightening. Of course, he had never seen Iris, which was something of a handicap. But if you had informed Inspector Sanford, "'that a striking blonde who probably had one arm in a sling "'could evade the police resources of the British Isles. "'He would have indulged in a smile "'and perhaps even favoured you with a pitying glance. "'But there it was. "'You couldn't get beyond facts. "'And the facts were that Iris Archer "'had promised to meet Paul Temple "'at the Shepley Hotel High Moorford. "'She had certainly visited the hotel "'and had even left major Guest as evidence of the fact.' Actually, Iris had walked out of the hotel, calmly annexed a new American car from just along the street, and driven to Glasgow, where she had left the car in Sockey Hall Street. It had been recovered some six hours later. But of Iris herself, there was no trace. Sir Graham Forbes had issued prompt orders for all the Scottish express trains to be searched without any tangible result except that a chorus-girl who bore some resemblance to Iris had been temporarily detained at Carlisle and released again after surprising her captors by the range of her vocabulary. "'I can't understand it at all, Annie,' Inspector Sanford confessed to his wife in the privacy of their trim little villa in an Edinburgh suburb. At home he invariably relapsed partly into his native dialect, "'although when in contact with his superior officers, "'Sanford's English was irreproachably correct. "'He had been educated at a good secondary school. "'His wife, who was placing a huge meal before him, "'fulfilled her customary role of comforter. "'The lass'll turn up somewhere before long,' she reassured him. "'No woman with a face like those pictures you showed me "'could hide herself away for long.' "'Some other woman'll be bound to give her away.' "'Sanford shook his head, somewhat sceptically. "'Don't forget, there's been four unsolved murders in the country so far this year,' he reminded her. "'This was a fact deeply rooted in his subconscious mind. "'It was Saturday lunchtime, and he was taking a few hours off for the first time since the search started. "'Sanford usually enjoyed his lunch on Saturdays, "'because it was invariably a leisurely meal, "'with a pleasant afternoon and evening to follow. "'But his wife took the edge off his appetite "'in the middle of the first course "'by announcing that they were paying a visit to her sister "'in the small town of Lee, some twenty miles away. "'But you know I've got to be on duty tomorrow morning, Annie,' "'her husband protested. "'Here I've been chasing all over Scotland. "'I want a bit of peace and quiet.' "'But Annie waved him aside. "'There's a train soon after nine in the morning, "'and I promised Susan faithfully that we'd both go. "'Herbert is particularly looking forward to seeing you.' "'Sanford snorted. "'It wasn't that he hated Susan so much. "'He could put up with her. "'It was her husband for whom Sanford had conceived such a hearty dislike. "'Herbert never seemed to tire of firing off a stream of facetious jokes "'about the police force.' "'He had a playful habit of greeting his brother-in-law "'by flinging open the front door and calling over his shoulder, "'They've come for us, Susie. "'They've found out we aren't married.' "'Then he would turn to the visitors and declare dramatically, "'It's a fair cop.' "'Yes. "'Herbert had never tired of the novelty "'of possessing a brother-in-law in the police force. "'Sanford gloomily reflected,' as he helped himself to the last few mouthfuls of his large meal. Already Annie was bustling about, starting to clear away the things preparatory to starting for the station. Her husband slowly filled his glass with ale, but the sight of it didn't seem to cheer him as it usually did. A can of stick, that Herbert, he muttered. He's a sight too smart. Maybe a week or two in the force would knock some of the clever ideas out of him. You always let him rub you up the wrong way, Annie protested. Anyhow, I promised we'd go, she declared flatly, and he knew it was useless to argue any further. To say that Inspector Sandford was disappointed would be putting it mildly. On Saturday afternoons, he looked forward to seeing the local amateur rugby club. They were up against a tough proposition this week, and he had been anticipating a lively afternoon. His pals, Geordie McFarlane and Sandy Lawson, had promised to be there. After the match, there would be a game of darts, and a drink or two at the Golden Thistle. Sandford had lately become adept at darts, and the game fascinated him. He sighed. Today, there wasn't even time for him to enjoy his usual after-dinner pipe. He went up to his room, grumbling to himself, and eventually emerged in a blue-serge suit which was far too tight under the arms. Before long his wife joined him, and they managed to catch the 310 train, which obligingly stopped at every station, landing them at Craigley at 415, by which time Sanford had smoked a packet of cigarettes and was feeling more than a trifle nervy and irritable. A penny-bus ride brought them to their destination, and the front door was opened by Herbert with the usual flourish. "'Susie!' he called. "'There's a plain-clothes cop outside. Quick, old girl, hide the swag!' Under his breath, Inspector Sanford muttered something which was inaudible. Annie greeted her brother-in-law enthusiastically, and Susie came along the hall to add to the welcome. "'Well, Wally?' "'How's the big four these days?' spluttered Herbert, with a knowing wink at Annie. "'When are they promoting you from Scotland to Scotland Yard?' "'His brother-in-law did not deign to reply, but Herbert appeared not to notice. "'Hello. You're getting a bit thin on top, Wally. Must have been doing a bit of thinking lately. "'I suppose you wouldn't have had anything to do with this Z-4 affair that was in all the papers this week.' As a matter of fact, retorted Sanford with ominous deliberation, I have. For once in a way, Herbert was momentarily taken aback. This was the first time he had ever extracted from Sanford any definite acknowledgement that he was connected with certain police activities. Well, temporised Herbert, not a bad little job, that. Of course, they had to call in that fellow Paul Temple. Do you know Paul Temple by any chance? Sanford shook his head, and relapsed into the silence he observed for long stretches when visiting his relatives. He noted with satisfaction that there was a huge dish of prawns on the tea-table, and found some consolation in this fact, for Inspector Sanford was very partial to prawns. When they were sitting round the table a few minutes later, Herbert said— ''We've got a surprise for you. Yes, a nice little treat for you this evening.'' ''Oh, yes,'' put in Susan enthusiastically. ''There's a company at the town hall this week. I went on Tuesday to see the farmer's wife, and they were so good that I booked seats for us all tonight.'' ''There now,'' said Annie. ''I haven't been to a good play for months.'' "'But you don't want to see it all over again, do you, Susie?' "'Oh, it isn't the same play. "'They changed it on Thursday. "'Tonight they're acting a play by Edgar Wallace. "'I think it's called The Man Who Changed His Name.' "'Sounds barmy to me,' commented Sandford skeptically. "'Ah, you don't know it all,' said Herbert. "'Now's your chance to pick up a tip or two, my lad.' Sanford helped himself to another large portion of prawns without making any further comment. He did not want to start any more silly arguments with Herbert. After all, you can't argue with a fool, he told himself. But Herbert did not intend to let an opportunity like this slip by so easily, and he continued to rally his brother-in-law to the delight of both women right up to the end of the meal. When they were all finished, Sanford carefully folded his napkin. Then he took a deep breath. "'One day somebody'll break in and pinch that imitation silver cup you won in the egg-and-spoon race,' he grunted. "'Then you'll run for the police fast enough.' He knew he touched a tender spot there, for Herbert was very proud of this cup, which, with the help of an extravagant start, he had won in a local hundred yards handicap, a feat... "'which he had never even remotely approached again. "'I can deal with anybody who breaks into this house,' Herbert snorted. "'And let me tell you, that cup's solid silver.' "'Sanford grinned for the first time. "'His shot had struck home. "'He felt that the afternoon had not been entirely wasted after all. "'As there were to be two performances at the town hall that evening, "'and Susan had booked for the first, "'they had very little time to spare.' Also, it was an excuse to hurry the men away from the table before their remarks became even more assiduous. There was, nevertheless, a distinct coolness obvious in the party when they started out, though this wore off a little by the time they'd reached the centre of the town. Craigley Town Hall had seen better days, but could never have been classed as picturesque architecture. For some peculiar reason, It boasted a tremendous tower, which seemed to serve no purpose whatsoever. And, of course, there was the inevitable balcony, from which election results had been announced since the year the building was first erected. On two large boards outside, eight-sheet lithographic posters luridly informed the public that the Maxwell Sherwood Dramatic Company presented the sensational crime play The Man Who Changed His Name— Direct from its phenomenal success at the Regency Theatre, London, the entrance was dimly lighted with a row of bare electric bulbs, two of which were not functioning, and the effect was not to be compared with the glaring neon of the majestic cinema opposite, standing in the vestibule, waiting for Susan and Annie to emerge from the cloakroom. Sanford sighed for the cheery amenities of the golden thistle the genuine old Scotch ale, the darts, the blazing fire throwing a ruddy glow on the faces of the congenial company. And here he was, due to waste the best part of an evening in a musty town hall, watching a fourth-rate theatrical company perform an out-of-date detective thriller. He turned to ask Herbert if the hall had a licence, then paused and finally changed his mind, recalling that Herbert was never very enthusiastic when the question of a quick one arose. "'Maybe I'll be able to slip out during the interval,' Sandford comforted himself. He would certainly need some sort of stimulation to see him through the evening. If it had been the pictures, he could have gone to sleep, but he knew from experience that it would be far too cold in the town hall to encourage slumber.' Annie and Susan returned, and they entered the main hall. Though they occupied the best seats, these could hardly be described as comfortable, for they were nothing but wooden chairs. Sanford cautiously manoeuvred the party, so that he sat on the gangway with Susan next to him, then Herbert, and finally Annie, furthest away, so that she would not be able to remonstrate if he went out for a drink, as he fully intended to do. "'The solitary piano tinkled out a rough-and-ready overture "'which was swallowed in echoes away up in the lofty ceiling. "'The lights snapped out one by one, "'and finally the curtain rose rather unsteadily, "'revealing a dingy box-chamber set. "'On a settee, smoking a cigar "'and endeavouring to portray a picture of sinister ease, "'reclined Maxwell Sherwood himself. "'He's ever so good!' "'Susan whispered to her brother-in-law, who grunted, "'knowing her childlike worship of make-believe. "'Presently, Mr. Sherwood's female accomplice in crime arrived on the scene. "'She's good, too,' enthused Susan again. "'She was only a maid in the other play, but—' "'There were one or two shushes from people nearby, "'so Susan relapsed into silence.' Sanford studied the girl on the stage with a thoughtful frown. He had a feeling that he knew the face, that he had seen the girl somewhere before. Herbert leaned across to him. "'What price the red-haired bit, Wally!' he sniggered. His wife silenced him. The play went on, and it became increasingly obvious that the girl with the striking red hair was a more polished performer than her colleague's. Even Sanford realised that she was exploiting an entirely different technique. Sanford did not leave his seat in the first interval. He stopped and studied the programme, noting that the red-haired girl called herself Lydia Meridue. Before the lights went down again, Sanford took a newspaper cutting out of his pocket and examined it closely. But the photograph, about the size of a postage stamp, was too blurred to convey any adequate impression. The girl in the picture was the most platinum of blondes. He frowned and replaced the cutting in his wallet. During the second interval, Sanford felt he had legitimate excuse for visiting the town arms next door. He leaned across to Herbert and asked, "'Coming?' Rather reluctantly, Herbert followed him. In the saloon bar of the town arms, Sanford discovered what he had anticipated— A rather elderly actor, grotesque in his grease-paint, leaning in lordly fashion against the mantelpiece. He recognised him as the butler in the play. Sanford entered into conversation with him almost at once by the simple expedient of standing him a drink. "'How's business?' he asked. The butler tossed down the drink he had been holding. "'Not bad, old man, not at all bad. Uh, "'Of course,' he added hastily. "'This is only a fill-in, as far as I'm concerned.' "'He drew closer to Herbert and Sanford "'and continued in a conspiratorial whisper. "'Just between ourselves, "'this is the first time I've ever been out with a stock crowd. "'No money in it. "'But it fills in, old man. "'It fills in.' "'He took another pull at his whiskey and winked. "'Smart girl you've got in your crowd.' "'said Sanford casually. "'The red-haired one. "'Oh, her,' rejoined the butler, "'in the disparaging tone of the small-time professional. "'She only joined last week.' "'Indeed,' said Sanford interestedly. "'Where did she come from?' "'No idea. "'The old man picked her up somewhere in Glasgow, I believe. "'They say she took the job for stocking money.' "'Suddenly the butler caught sight of the clock in the passage outside. "'Hell!' he ejaculated. "'I'm on in two minutes!' "'He drained his glass at a single gulp and wished them a hasty good-night. "'Sanford suspected that this was merely an excuse to avoid returning his hospitality. "'But he was not altogether sorry that the man had departed. "'What's all this about that redhead?' asked Herbert curiously as they made their way back to the theatre. I thought you had your eye on her. Don't tell me you're starting a new hobby at your time of life. Nothing like that, snapped Sanford, very much on the alert now. You go back in there. I've got a call to make at the police station. Herbert looked taken aback for a moment, but did as he was instructed. Sandford found the station without much difficulty. "'It was actually very near to the town hall. "'Inside, a burly sergeant was dozing over a huge fire. "'Sanford knew him by sight, "'but produced his credentials to save time in any possible argument. "'I want to see all the circulars, photos, "'and any other dope you've got about Iris Archer,' he began briskly. "'The sergeant rubbed his eyes, yawned, and went over to some dusty files.' "'Eventually he discovered a photo-reproduction and a description. "'They were not over-methodical at Craig Lee. "'Give me a minute or two, and I'll find some more,' the sergeant wheezed. "'There was some stuff came in on Thursday, if I remember rightly.' "'All right,' snapped Sanford, studying the picture, "'which had been taken two years previously. "'It was a studio portrait.' and the photographer had played tricks with the lighting, with the result that the platinum blonde he had produced might have been any one of the dozen models whom he employed regularly. Sanford was really very little the wiser. The description was the same as that on his newspaper cutting. "'Just give me another minute, Inspector,' the sergeant was mumbling, but Sanford cut him short. "'I want you to help me at the town hall.' "'Stand by in case you need it, and if you bungle things, "'you'll be losing those stripes of yours.' "'By the time they reached the town hall, the performance was nearly over, "'and Sanford at once made his way behind the scenes. "'Mounting some stone steps, he reached the stage level "'and stood in a corner watching the play. "'Lydia Merridew was not on the stage. "'After a while, Sanford approached a scene-shifter and asked, "'Which is Miss Meridew's dressing-room?' "'Number five, down the passage,' said the man, "'with a jerk of the thumb to indicate the direction. "'Sanford walked along the corridor and tapped at number five. "'Who is it?' said a voice. "'I want to speak to Miss Merridew, replied the inspector. "'The door was opened by the red-haired girl, "'who had a rather exaggerated make-up. "'She gave him a searching glance.' What do you want? I want to talk to you. After a pause, during which she scrutinised him shrewdly, she backed a step. Better come in. He closed the door carefully behind him and looked round the barely furnished room. Two theatrical baskets stood in one corner, a couple of dresses were suspended on hangers, and the dressing shelf was littered with the usual grease paints and towels. If it's anything private, said Lydia Meridue, you'd better get on with it quickly. I share this room with another girl, and I expect she'll be back in a few minutes. She seated herself in front of the mirror and began touching up her makeup. The strong, garish light from four electric bulbs was concentrated on her face. Sanford looked hard into the mirror and came to a sudden decision. I arrest you, Iris Archer, "'On charge of attempted murder,' he declared, "'placing a hand on her shoulder. "'Under the thin dressing-gown she was wearing "'he felt her wince with a slight exclamation of pain, "'felt that the shoulder was padded with some sort of bandaging. "'Then he knew that he had made no mistake. "'The eyes in the mirror seemed to be burning into his. "'After some seconds she turned. "'How in God's name did you find out?' She gasped. I haven't the time to go into that now, he replied sternly. Sanford had a shrewd idea that she was playing for time, and he had no intention of giving her any loophole. You'd better put your coat on and come along, he ordered brusquely. But I can't come like this. I must take my makeup off and change my frock. All right, agreed Sanford reasonably. I'll give you five minutes. "'and I'll be waiting outside.' "'He went back into the corridor "'and paced steadily up and down. "'Once or twice a member of the company, "'leaving or entering a dressing-room, "'eyed him curiously, but he remained quite indifferent. "'He gave her seven minutes before tapping on the door. "'There was no reply. "'Miss Merridew, he called sharply. "'Still no answer.' He turned the knob and found that the door was locked. Without further ado, he flung his full weight against the door. The noise brought several of the actors running out of their dressing rooms. What's all this? The imperious tones of Maxwell Sherwood resounded along the corridor. Look here, my man. You can't—I'm a police officer, cut in Sanford, gasping from his exertions. I've got to get in here. He continued his assaults on the door, and there was a sudden crash as it gave way. Sanford rushed into the room and over to the far wall. He dragged aside a curtain he had previously noted, imagining that it had concealed some sort of recess. He had been wrong. Behind the curtain was an emergency exit door leading out to a flight of wooden steps. He was about to descend when a hand pulled him back. "'Wait a minute!' It was the elderly butler. "'I noticed this morning the wood in those steps is rotten. "'Wouldn't stand your weight. "'Besides, two of them are missing.' "'Sanford peered out. "'In the darkness below, he thought he could discern something white. "'Take me round there, quick as you can,' he ordered. "'Come on,' said the butler, thoroughly enjoying himself. He led the way back through the dressing-room, along corridors, down two flights of stairs, and into the open. Iris was lying at the foot of the steps, writhing in pain. One leg was crumpled beneath her. "'Oh, there you are, Inspector,' she said. "'It's my ankle. "'I'd have cheated you if it hadn't been for that damned rotten escape. "'Might have expected it in a dump like this.' "'Sanford turned to the butler. "'Go round to the front and bring the sergeant,' he instructed. "'Coming out of the theatre five minutes later, "'Herbert blinked at the spectacle of his brother-in-law "'and a burly sergeant assisting a very attractive red-haired actress into a taxi. "'Herbert sighed. "'These policemen have all the luck,' he muttered enviously. In one of the first-class compartments of the Coronation Scot, three travellers were settling down for the journey. "'We were lucky to get this compartment all to ourselves,' smiled Steve. Paul Temple laughed. "'Yes, it's wonderful what the police can do, eh, Sir Graham?' "'Well,' replied Sir Graham, with a twinkle in his eyes. This seems to be the first opportunity we've had for talking over the case, so I thought I'd make sure we weren't interrupted. He took out a case of cigars and offered it to Temple. Would you care for a cigarette, Steve? he asked. Not at the moment. Two minutes later, the train slid smoothly away from the platform and clattered through the dingy suburbs. Sir Graham sighed and stretched his legs. What happened about your car, Temple? They told me at Aberdeen it'd be through by tomorrow. Not much fun motoring in this weather, commented Sir Graham. No, said Steve. This is much cosier. Hmm. Sir Graham puffed at his cigar. Well, Temple? Temple smiled. Well, Sir Graham? What puzzles me is that business with Ben. I don't see how the devil you account for How the devil I account for the flask, Sir Graham. Well, after all, the flask was yours, and there certainly there was certainly cyanide in the flask. Nodded Temple, yes, I agree. still, when Mrs. Weston sold me that flask, I don't suppose she intended that Ben should oh. "'Darling!' broke in Steve, horrified. "'Yes,' said Temple, seriously. "'That was certainly a lucky escape, Steve, as far as I was concerned.' "'Steve pressed his hand, but made no further comment. "'At the time, it made me more certain than ever that Steiner was for, continued Forbes. "'You see, it was Steiner who suggested the drink.' "'In the first place?' "'Yes, but Steiner couldn't possibly have known what was in the flask,' "'Temple pointed out. "'He might have known, Temple,' said Forbes thoughtfully. "'It's very difficult to say. "'Incidentally, was the flask your first indication "'that Mrs. Weston was implicated?' "'Temple shook his head. "'No, the flask merely confirmed what was already in my mind.' I had a pretty shrewd suspicion that Mrs. Weston had some connection with the affair, even at the very beginning. But, darling, why? asked Steve. Well, said Temple, in the first place, Ernie Weston returned the letter which he had stolen, and which was obviously of supreme importance to Z 4 Shortly after he returned the letter, Weston was murdered. Why? Obviously— because he had unwittingly let the cat out of the bag about the letter. lights began to dawn upon Sir Graham. You mean that he had told his wife about it without realising that she was Zed-Four? Exactly, agreed Temple, although, of course, it wasn't quite so simple as that at the time. I knew that he told someone about the letter, and I was pretty sure that that someone was Z 4 But it might have been Steiner, or possibly Bryant, or possibly some other person we had never even heard of. But if it was Bryant or Steiner, then Weston must have been on friendly terms with them, said Forbes. That point struck me at once. They must, in fact, have been well aware that Ernie Weston was what is euphemistically termed a kleptomaniac. They must have known, in fact, that he was in the habit of helping himself to other people's possessions. Yet both Bryant and Steiner had been obviously puzzled by the loss of a watch-chain and a pair of cufflings. Now, assuming that Steiner and Bryant were all that they seemed to be, or at any rate were not definitely connected with Z-4, then obviously Weston must have spoken to someone else—someone, in fact— "'who knew exactly the sort of game he was playing. "'It seemed to me that that someone "'might very easily be an obvious sort of person after all, "'a person who Weston really would talk to, "'without attaching any particular importance to it. "'Someone, in fact, like his wife.' "'He paused, looked at his cigar, and found that it was out. "'Don't light it again,' said Forbes quickly. "'Here, take another.' "'Temple laughed. "'The cigars were a present from Rex Bryant,' smiled Sir Graham. "'Sort of a quid pro quo in return for an exclusive story. "'Well, uh, go on, Temple. "'Let's hear how you narrowed down the field.' "'Temple eased the band off the cigar. "'Later, when Steve and I made arrangements to go to Aberdeen "'and that dreadful accident happened,' It became quite obvious that Z-4 was actually at the inn. Only someone staying at the inn could possibly have discovered our arrangements. If any doubt existed in my mind, it was very soon eliminated after our experience at Skerry Lodge. Steve shuddered at the recollection. Yes, said Forbes. "'But that didn't eliminate Dr. Steiner "'or Rex Bryant as possible suspects, "'or Iris Archer too, for that matter. "'Remember, the whole three of them "'were staying at the royal gate.' "'Temple carefully applied a match to the new cigar. "'If Dr. Steiner had been said for, "'it's hardly likely that he'd have interrupted Iris "'in her search for the letter,' he argued. "'Don't forget,' that she was following instructions received from Zedfall. You mean, through Mrs. Mofford? Yes, that's true, Forbes conceded. And now we come to Rex Bryant. Candidly, Sir Graham, I never suspected Rex from the very first, continued Temple. Finding the watch-chain on Weston had quite the opposite effect on me from that intended. It more than convinced me of his innocence. Yes, mused Forbes. I rather suspected it was a pretty obvious sort of plant. And now we come to Mrs. Weston, said Temple. Well, in the first place, she was always at the inn, and therefore in a position to overhear most of our conversation. Indeed, on one occasion, when we were talking about Lindsay's letter, she actually marched into the room on the pretense of clearing away the coffee-things. "'Seemed natural enough at the time,' commented Forbes. "'Yes, she was a clever little woman, "'and she had an instinct for time and place,' said Temple. "'Also, as I've already pointed out, "'she was the most likely person for her husband to confide in about the letter, "'and thirdly, she made a very bad slip.' "'Forbes looked up. "'What do you mean, Temple?' Paul Temple smiled. You probably remember that I discovered certain interesting details about Iris's past, details which Z4 knew about, but which Iris was anxious to conceal. Forbes nodded. Temple said, I received a telegram which confirmed my suspicions about Iris, but when I received the telegram, it had already been opened. You mean... Mrs. Weston actually opened it herself. Precisely. But by mentioning the fact herself, delivering the telegram at a crucial moment, and appearing apparently indifferent to the whole business, the point might very easily have been overlooked. Temple laughed. I told you she had a nice sense of time and place, Sir Graham. I'm beginning to see daylight, said Forbes. As soon as Mrs. Weston read that wire... She knew that you knew all there was to know about Iris, and that sooner or later Iris would talk. Paul Temple nodded. Of course, you've guessed the secret, Sir Graham. The Chief Commissioner nodded and took a letter from the inside pocket of his overcoat. This confirms your theory about Mrs. Weston, he said with a smile. Mrs. Weston was definitely the chambermaid at the Martinez Hotel. Even in those days, the French authorities suspected her of espionage. Temple grinned. You didn't lose much time checking up, did you, Sir Graham? Steve said, Paul, you remember when you asked Ernie Weston about your cigarette lighter? What was the idea? Oh, that was only to get his reactions, my dear. I knew then for a certainty that he was in the habit of helping himself to other people's things. "'and that in all probability he had been responsible for the letter disappearing. "'After he had finished his cigar, Forbes suggested that they should go along to lunch. "'When they were seated in the dining-car, Temple asked, "'Have you heard anything from the War Office people?' "'Yes, but it was quite hopeless. "'The chalet was absolutely gutted. "'Even Hardwick's sketches were just a mass of charred paper.' During the rest of the lunch, they discussed general subjects. Forbes stayed behind for a few minutes in the dining car to finish his liqueur, while Temple and Steve returned to their compartment. "'It'll be nice to get home again,' sighed Steve, as she picked up a magazine. "'Presumably that means we'll be off again next week,' grinned her husband. Steve laughed. "'As a matter of fact, I was thinking of Lake Como.' "'After all, darling, we haven't been there since our honeymoon.' "'Yes,' said Temple, looking thoughtfully out of the window "'at the wild northern countryside. "'Do you remember that lake, Paul? "'The one which was blue, a deep, unforgettable blue?' "'All the lakes were blue, dear,' he smiled. "'I mean the one at the foot of the forest, "'where we had an argument about fish being able to talk.' What an argument! Our first. It was a hell of a row for beginners, laughed Temple. Presently Forbes rejoined them, and began speculating once more upon the chances of his paying a visit to America. It was one of his pet topics. Temple and Steve related some of their experiences in the States, and in practically no time they were rushing through the suburbs of London. As they left the train, they saw a massive and familiar figure ahead of them. He seems to know his way about, even if he is a foreigner, commented Steve. Why, it's Steiner!" ejaculated Forbes, standing with one foot on the step of a taxi. I've a damn good mind to follow him, and not much point in that, Sir Graham, Temple assured him, as their own taxi started off. ''But look here, Temple, I see Rex has got his story all right,'' said Temple quickly, indicating a newspaper stand displaying the London Evening Post. ''Good old Rex,'' applauded Steve, with the genuine reporter's love of a scoop. ''You certainly handed him a first-class story, Sir Graham,'' said Temple. The Chief Commissioner smiled, but he was obviously rather exasperated. ''Now look here, Temple,'' he said. "'There's something about all this business I don't quite understand.' "'Oh? "'And what's that?' asked Temple. "'And it must be recorded that there was a mischievous twinkle in his eye. "'Well, we know, for instance, who Rex Bryant is,' said Forbes. "'And we know that Iris, Van Draper, Guest, and Mrs. Moffat "'were members of the organization. "'We even know who Zed 4 is.' But there's still one rather important person we seem to be overlooking. And who's that? Why, the man who came over with you on the Golden Kipper, said Forbes. Steve nodded. Like the chief commissioner, she too was obviously perplexed by the identity of the Austrian. What on earth was he doing in Scotland? she asked. I think he told us, Steve. He was on holiday. On holiday, exclaimed Sir Graham, and it must be recorded that he looked very bewildered. But who the devil is the fellow? Paul Temple smiled. It was a very pleasant smile. Believe it or not, Sir Graham, he said, his name is Steiner, Dr. Ludwig Steiner. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of Philadelphia. That is the end of News of Paul Temple. It was written by Francis Durbridge and read by Michael Tudor Barnes. This has been an ISIS Audiobooks presentation.